Uh, We are beginning a new sermon series this week in the book of Daniel. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Daniel comes after Ezekiel. I didn't even bookmark it this time, so I had to look a little bit. Uh, We're going to be looking at Daniel uh, chapter 1 and just the first seven verses. Would you please give careful attention to this reading of God's holy word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Aziriah, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such and be seated. Why do you read Scripture? How do you read Scripture? And what books of Scripture do you start with first, and do you continue in studying? As new believers, the Bible can be pretty intimidating. It's 66 books, has both an Old Testament and a New Testament. But even as seasoned believers, what books do you continually go to? What books do you dwell on and study for your growth in grace? These are real questions that we face. And as pastors and elders of this church, we are desirous to help each of you to be lifelong learners and readers of the Bible. We want you to sit under the preaching of it, but we also want you throughout the week to attend this amazing gift that we have, which many generations of Christians did not have, physical copies readily available. You have multiple translations in your house, most likely, and many of them. Generations of Christians just got the preaching of the Word that one time. We are blessed to have all of these books in really good translations. It is the conviction and practice of this church to teach and preach from both the Old and New Testament. As God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word speaking to us today. Recently, we've completed the New Testament books of Matthew, Galatians, and Philemon, and it's fitting that we now 
include an Old Testament book, and that is the book of Daniel. Uh, Laying behind this conviction of the session of reading both the Old and New Testament is those words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to his disciple Timothy, saying that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. At the time that Paul is writing, the New Testament is in the unfinished. When he talks about Scripture here, he's talking specifically about the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, by extension, that includes, and Peter will talk about Paul's writings and the rest as Scripture, but this is really important for us to understand that the Old Testament is God's Word for us. From a redemptive historical perspective and from our own context in redemptive history, I'm convinced that the book of Daniel is one of the most important books that we should read and understand and meditate on. As we'll see in these sermons, and in this sermon today, Daniel is a prophet of God, speaking to the people of God as pilgrims living in a pilgrim land. Daniel is writing to the church as sinners, living in a world of sin and misery, and he is explaining to them, and to us, how to live in this life in light of God's sovereignty over all of creation. All of us here are sinners living in a world of sin and and misery. The book, this book shows us that God is not absent, that He is in control of this world and its history. More than this, God is using the difficulties of this life, even what you're suffering through now, to bring about His sovereign purpose for His glory and for the good of His people. In this life of suffering, We are tempted to think that God is not there and that God does not care. But the book of Daniel reminds us that God is here and that he does care. And that through his wisdom, he is bringing about his purposes in his son. Today, we will be introduced to the book of Daniel. And we will seek to see its purpose and place in scripture and to apply it to our own lives. What we will see this morning is that God is sovereign over all of history and over all of his people, and that we must live out pilgrim lives through faith in his Son. Uh, To introduce ourselves to this book and to orient ourselves to its contents, we will look at Daniel uh, verses 1 through 7 and consider three points. First, we're just going to simply look at when was Daniel written? Second, we'll look at why did God have it written? And three, we'll consider what does this book have to tell us about Christ? That's our simple outline today, when, why, and what. Let's begin with that first point. When was Daniel written? Verse 1 begins with a time indicator of historical note. He writes, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, Jehoiakim was one of the kings of Judah. He was the second son of Josiah. Unlike his father, Josiah, who by and large was a good and godly king who brought about reforms and had that one mistake at the end in trying to intercept the battle, 
But he was a good and godly king, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Unlike his father, Jehoiakim was a very wicked king. Both 2 Kings 23 and 2 Chronicles 36 record that Jehoiakim did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, committing abominations in accordance with all the other wicked kings which had come before him. Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years as king, from 609 B.C. to 598 B.C. Here Daniel says that in the third year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and besieged it. Now I know what you're thinking. Daniel says in the third year, but Jeremiah says in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign is when the Lord sent Nebuchadnezzar against the people. Is there a contradiction here? Not at all. Jeremiah is using uh, the Judean form of keeping track of the accession uh, of kings. Uh, they did not count the early portion, or they did count it. Uh, they did count the early portion, portion of it. So Jeremiah gets four years. But Daniel is writing from Babylon, and he's using their system of counting the years of a king. And they didn't include the first part of the year, the small portion, before the king ascended. All that is to say, there's no contradiction here. These two writers are writing from specific contexts, and they have their own forms of calendar uh, dating the reign of kings. Uh, This is important because this is one of the things that critics of the Bible try to say is a contradiction. They try to say that Daniel is getting facts wrong, but that is not the case. But moreover, this is helpful because it helps us understand the date which Daniel is talking about. And that is 605 B.C. It was this year that Nebuchadnezzar led an army against the Egyptians and the Assyrians, winning this battle at Charchemish and rising to the height of power. Assyria was the big guys on the scene for a long time. But Babylon, through this victory of Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the armies, They became the world power at that time, having great dominion over all the nations at that time. Also in this year, Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, I know, there's a lot of syllables in these names, his dad died and he became king then. This is the year that Nebuchadnezzar won a definitive battle to become the world power And he also became the king of Babylon. That is the year in which he also came against Judah. In verse 2, we read next of what, what took place with Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem. And the Lord, the Lord, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Notice who is the subject of the main verb here. It is not Jehoiakim. It is not Nebuchadnezzar. But it is the Lord. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, along with the vessels and utensils used in his own temple. The Lord gave these over. It is God the Lord who is sovereign over his people and sovereign over the greatest king and commander at that time. And he is using him as an instrument of discipline for his people. 
So we read that because the Lord gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the latter brought them into Shinar. And Shinar is a place, it's an older name for Mesopotamia, which is that part of the ancient Near East. Uh, it, in this context, it's specifically referring to Babylon itself. But it's significant that Daniel chooses to use this older term, Shinar, because it recalls to our minds, if you remember, uh, in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. That was built in Shinar. So through using this term, Daniel is alluding to Babylon as being in accordance with his complete opposition to God. Yet, in his sovereignty, the Lord is using this wicked nation to bring about his purposes. In line with this, Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar brought the vessels of the Lord into the temple of his god or gods. The national god of Babylon was Marduk, who in scripture is talked about as Baal. And his temple was chief among the temples in Babylon. It's likely there that he brought these vessels into the temple of Marduk. I know that a lot of this is names and numbers, and that you might be wondering, what does this have to do with our study of the book of Daniel and its application to our lives? To that, I would say very much. The book of Daniel takes place in a very specific and significant situation in the history of God's people and really in the history of the world. The question of when this book is talking about and when it was written is no small matter. All the way back in Deuteronomy 28, before the Lord brought his people in the land of Israel, he promised them the blessing of the covenant if they were faithful and warned them of the curses which would come on them if they lacked in faith and were disobedient to the Lord and his commands. Israel, very early on, when they entered the land, they split apart wickedly, They tried to set up a new center of worship in the northern part of Israel, and they became a divided nation. And after years of patience and calling Israel to repentance, the Lord in 722 BC had northern Israel destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, over a hundred years later, and all that time to see their faults, to see what happened to their sister nation that divided from them and being desolated by the Assyrians, now, after a hundred years, Judah has not got the lesson and they're still sinning and the Lord is sending Babylon to do the work even as he had Assyria do it a hundred years or so prior. While Babylon viewed this as a victory of their god Marduk, in reality, it is the sovereign will of Israel's God being carried out to punish his people in accordance with his covenantal promises. To Judah in in exile, these verses in this book assure them that despite what it looks like, their God is in control, and that all of this is happening according to his sovereign purposes. To us living in the 21st century context of the West, we are often tempted to view ourselves in the promised land under a theocratic nation. But the truth is, we are a pilgrim people, living as Israel in the wilderness and as exiles in Babylon. 
And we'll talk more about that later. In this situation, the book of Daniel reminds us that we are strangers living in a strange land, looking for a heavenly home. Moreover, it helps us to look and trust in our sovereign God, who is working throughout history for the good of his people and for his own glory, bringing about his covenantal promises. Which brings us to our next point. We have just looked at when Daniel was written. Now let us consider why Daniel was written. We approach the answer to this question that God, why would he have this book written and given to his people at that time? And what does it have to say to us? As we approach the answer to this question, we move further into our narrative. Daniel writes in verses 3 through 4, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The term translated as chief eunuch does not necessarily mean a a castrated male. It it can be translated as chief official, uh, simply denoting a a high-ranking person in the court of Babylon. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar giving the important job of choosing worthy use of the people of Israel from the royal family and of the nobility, Judeans, to his chief official. He gives this job to Ashpenaz. Notice that Ashpenaz was not to just take anybody, but the social elite of Judah. They were to be those who were without moral or physical blemish, of a good character, skillful in wisdom, intelligent with knowledge and learning, and with good prospects of serving in the king's court in Babylon. And they were to learn the literature and language of the Chaldeans. These young men, who would have been about 14 or 16, and imagine how scary that would have been, being taken away from your homeland at 14 or 16, and taken into this foreign place of the foreign language, and being subjected to all of this, they would have had to have been the best of the best, of a royal and elite family without blemish, and having all knowledge. The literature of Babylon included mathematics, but also astrology. Babylon excelled in astrology and mythology. It would also cultivate one to the worldviews and religions of an outlook of Babylon. And we still have these texts today. The Enuma Elish, you can look at, or the Epic of Gilgamesh, which my wife teaches uh, in classes at classical schools. Um, They're interesting to read, but they're also really interesting to see how they contrast with Scripture and the narrative of creation. But we still have these texts. Uh, The language of Babylon refers to Neo-Babylonian, a form of Akkadian. And this is actually a language which I took in college under an expert, (laughs) and I did not show myself to be a skillful or learned or intelligent youth at that, but it was a good experience. Uh, Cuneiform uses a a wedge-shaped characters, and it just looks like sticks, figures, and stuff. But it's actually really important for studying the Bible. It helps us cross-cultural studies. But that's the language that it refers to, a Neo-Babylonian, a form of Akkadian. 
Nevertheless, the purpose of choosing the best of the best of Judah's young people and bringing them to Babylon to learn their literature and language is to do one thing. It is to indoctrinate them in the ways of Babylon. Thus we read in verse 5, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Notice that as the best of the best of Judah, they were to be fed and bribed with the best of the best of Babylon. They were to feed and drink no less than from the king's table. As we will discuss later, this would have put them in compromising situations as Jews. Moreover, we're told that they were to be trained for three years before they could stand before the king. This was a standard time of training for those who would become wise men and advisors to the king. All of this helps us to remember the time in which this took place. This is in 605 BC with Judah in subjection to Babylon. In the next 18 or 19 years, Judah will rebel twice against their overlord, and more and more will be exiled. Eventually, this will lead to the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586. But this is just the first wave, and it's just taking the social elite to have them come and be indoctrinated in Babylon. A scholar, Paul Tanner, explains the situation better than I can. He says, Their training, however, was meant to strip them of their national and religious affections and to conform them to the pagan worldview of the Babylonians. In essence, they were being reprogrammed to think and act like the world. In other words, Babylon was taking the best of the best of the Jews and was seeking to indoctrinate them in accordance with Babylon's pagan and worldly worldview. Does that sound familiar at all to you? In looking at this text, we need to understand that the world, the flesh, and the devil are seeking to possess and to indoctrinate the best of our youth, and indeed, all of us to their own worldly outlook. In our text, for sure, the emphasis is on taking the best of the best of our youth. But in subsequent passages in history, this will eventually include all of God's people. From this text, we need to understand that the world and the flesh and the devil, they want our children, the best of our best. But ultimately, they want all of us to be trained in the world's ways and to serve in a roller's court. But in his grace, God gives us the book of Daniel He gives this book to his church to make us wise to the ways of the world and the flesh and the devil that we may resist them. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is like the battle of Daniel and his friends, is not against merely flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers at work in this world. I know that sometimes we could talk about this and it sounds like it's not true and we can just shrug it off. That's just 
a weird old outlook. But that's why God gives us this book to tell us, no, this is true. The world, the flesh, and the devil want your soul. And they want the souls of your children. So this is why we read a book like Daniel, because it reminds us that we need to be aware of the reprogramming and the indoctrination which is out there, which the devil uses. This book shows us how to live as faithful saints, even as we traverse the streets of Babylon. Which brings us to our next and last point. We have looked at when Daniel was written, and we have just considered why Daniel was written. Now let us consider what does Daniel have to tell us and teach us about Christ. In this sermon, we have just talked about when it was written, among the tumultuous times of Judah, falling under the covenantal curses of God. And we've just looked at why Daniel was written, to give us direction and to give hope to the people of God, living under the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now we're considering what the book of Daniel has to tell us of Jesus Christ. In this passage so far, we have seen the powers of this world through the kingdom of Babylon, how they have come up against the people of God and are seeking to destroy them and to conform them to their ways. Now in this passage, we get the names of the young men being taken to Babylon to be indoctrinated in the world's ways. Verse 6 says, Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. As was common, and you're probably familiar with, among Hebrews, and scholars have noticed this, the names that these men have, these young men have, they're Jewish names, they have a theological significance to them. For example, uh, Daniel means uh, God is judge, or maybe God is my judge. Um, Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is, or we might say, who is like God? And Azariah means Yahweh helps, or Yahweh the Lord has helped And the first order of business with these new Hebrew servants for the chief of the eunuchs is to give them names. Understand it's not because the Babylonians had trouble pronouncing the Hebrew names, like sometimes I do. But this naming of people, this ritual, it had significance. In that time and culture, naming signified having dominion over someone. We can even think about Adam in the garden who was given dominion over the creatures. And what's God task him to do to show his dominion? He has him go and name all the animals. But in the context of exile, this was an expression of power indicating ownership. It communicates that they are now Nebuchadnezzar's property. More than this, this practice of renaming people who are foreign slaves or servants was meant to bring about a separation from their homeland and to transform their identity. In this case, from Judean royalty to Babylonian servant. With this verse, the following narrative, and indeed the narrative of the whole book, is set up with this question. Will God's people be faithful in exile. The nation that was exiled for its faithlessness, will it find faith in exile? 
In response to this question, God's people may themselves have asked, what does it look like to be faithful in Babylon, in exile? What does that look like? How can we worship the Lord apart from the physical temple of the Lord? How can we keep the ceremonial laws in a pagan land full of uncleanness? How can we keep the moral law in a land filled with vice? These are the questions which the book of Daniel seeks to address. Here God puts forth Daniel and his friends as concrete examples of living faithfully in exile. And what this looks like is trusting in the Lord and relying on his grace and his sovereignty no matter the cost. Friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, the same question comes to us. Will God's people be faithful in exile? Will we be faithful in exile? Do you realize that we are exiles living in Babylon? In 1 Peter 1, verse 1, the Apostle Peter greets the Christian churches in Asia Minor in this way. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Here he's identifying Christians as elect exiles scattered throughout the earth. He's intentionally using the language of the Old Testament for the people of God, and he's applying it to these Greek believers living in Asia Minor, that they are elect exiles. Later in the letter, in uh, 5.13, Peter identifies with this exilic identity. He says, She who is, in, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Babylon here most likely refers to the church which met and which lived in Rome. But with, attached with the language of Babylon and chosen, Peter is saying and identifying this church in Rome, in Babylon, and he's identifying it with the universal church, which is living in exile, or elect chosen exiles. What he's communicating here is that this earth is not our home, but we are chosen for another home. We too, as the church of Jesus Christ, are elect exiles living in a Babylonianish culture, which prioritizes power, pleasure, prominence, and popularity. We need to heed the Apostle John's warning and command in Revelation 18.4, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Thankfully, the Lord has given us the book of Daniel to guide and encourage us as pilgrims living in a pilgrim land. Have you ever heard the saying, dare to be a Daniel? It's a challenge which Christian teachers and preachers have used over the years, and sometimes it can be cringy. But it challenges believers fundamentally to live out their faith as a witness in a pagan culture. There's something to this statement. As God has given Daniel to us as an example of faith, even as the author of Hebrews calls on us in Hebrews 11 to look to those who have conquered through faith before us, mentioning explicitly in verse 33, who stopped the mouths of lions. This is most likely a reference to Daniel, as we'll talk about in the later narrative. But notice the emphasis 
throughout Hebrews 11. And I encourage you this afternoon or this week to read Hebrews 11. But don't stop. Go to Hebrews 12 as well. It is not on their great deeds or mighty acts that he focuses, but he focuses on their faith in Jesus Christ and their patient endurance, suffering on behalf of Christ. In this sermon series, you better believe I'm going to challenge all of us to dare to be a Daniel as a godly example of faith and patient endurance. But we won't stop there. Instead, we will follow the example of the author of Hebrews, who ended his list of the hall of faith with these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. And you must finish Hebrews 11 with that. It's an unfortunate chapter division. At the end of the day, our good works do not save us, nor do the godly examples of those we look up to, or our parents, or friends, or mentors. Only the perfection of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ can save us, and it is him we look to in faith. Him who God called out of Egypt as his son, as you remember, Matthew tells us, who experienced the true exodus for us. Jesus Christ, who wandered in the wilderness and faced the temptations of the devil and rejected them by his faith in God and his trust in the word of God. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who endured the ultimate exile on the cross. Understand, exile represents separation from God's presence. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, even as we confessed today, for us men, meaning humans, and for our salvation, Jesus Christ experienced that separation, that exile, which all of this represents. And he did it for you and for your salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who endures all these things for the people of God so that we can look to him. So it's my prayer that today and throughout this study of Daniel, that we all would flee from the Babylonian captivity of this world, the flesh and the devil, and that we would cling to Christ by faith. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are glorious, Lord over all victorious. We thank you that you give us the book of Daniel to teach us about uh, people of God who have gone before our fathers in the face, but most importantly, to teach us about the sovereignty of our God and the glory of our Savior, who for us, men and women, boys and girls, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now exalted at your right hand. How thankful we are that these leaders that try to attack your people, the, the pomp of Babylon or any nation which rises up against you, that Jesus Christ is now making them his footstool and that he reigns sovereignly on high 
And he works about all of these things in this life, even the sufferings we face for us, for our good, and for your glory. So we pray today that you would transform us through your word and that you would bless us now. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we talked about in our passage today, when they took them into exile, the king gave them new names, and he gave them food from his table and drink from it. In our baptism, God does not just give us a new name. He places his triune name upon us and claims us as his. And God doesn't just give us food from his table, but he welcomes us to his table to dine and eat and be nourished as the family of God and the people of God. That's what's represented here today. But also what's represented is the exile which the Lord Jesus Christ faced for us. His body broken, his blood shed, so that we might be brought near. Now, that being said, this is a table for those who have been baptized and have the name of the Lord on them. It's for those who are members of a Bible-believing church, those who are repenting of their sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that does not describe you, I would say let these elements pass by, but cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him in faith, who's calling you even now out of Babylon even as he calls all of us out of Babylon through this meal. To that end, let us go and ask the Lord to bless these ordinary elements to our spiritual nourishment. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our King and you are a gracious King. You have given us a new name in Christ and you have placed your triune name on us that we are now sons and daughters in the Son. I pray, Lord, that you would set aside these simple and ordinary elements, uh, bread and wine, and that you would bless them to our spiritual nourishment. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, who for us, men, women, boys and girls, suffered and died. We thank you, Lord Jesus, our good and gracious King, and it is in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.